My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is the Mission Innovation Podcast. Compassion is just being nice and kind to people and helpful when, you know, you're with them and something's hurting them in some way. But compassion, I think, is even before we do that, compassion is how we think and how we respond to other people and our attitude toward other people that they're, you know, if they're different than we are, that somehow we aren't connected to them in some way, but what we truly are. Joyce Rupp has been called one of the best Christian spiritual guides writing today. She's a Catholic sister, a member of the Servite Order, and is well known internationally for her work as a spiritual mentor, spiritual guide, retreat leader, and conference speaker. She is also the author of numerous best-selling and award-winning books on spirituality. She is co-director of the Institute of Compassionate Presence, and we are pleased to be in conversation with her today. Joyce, you have been described as a spiritual guide and mentor by many. How did this work and interest begin for you? I think that it really began for me when I was in my mid-30s, and I began working in some Catholic parishes in Western Iowa. I actually worked in five rural parishes. I was a resource person for adult education, and the wonder for me was the, the beauty of the people I worked with. You know, a lot of them parents or single people, and the stories that they carried and their desire for greater meaning in their life. I mean, I was, I was just really taken with that. With the writing I've done, I always have aimed it toward helping people understand their lives in the light of a deeper area. I educated other people and I helped them to learn how to be in touch with their inner self, uh, led them on retreats, trained them to give retreats themselves. And so that was really the starting point for me. And it actually, that's such a wonderful question because underneath every aspect of my ministry since then, it's always been that desire to help people get in touch with their deeper selves and, and find peace and meaning in their life, really. I think that's what it's been all about. You have done a lot of writing and retreats on the theme of compassion. That particular topic of compassion, what caused you to make that a focus of your work? So in my early 20s, I learned um, in my particular community, the Servants of Mary, that our main devotion is to Mary standing at the foot of the cross. So our devotion really is compassion. Our our focus in ministry is being with people who are suffering and tending to that. So I lived with that for a number of years. And then when I was in my late 40s, I decided to do some graduate work in transpersonal psychology. I studied at a Buddhist institute. And that was just such a turning point for me in regard to compassion, because I I didn't know much about Buddhism. And I learned so much that fit into my own Catholic tradition. And I, and I was amazed that they, they even took a vow of compassion. I thought, wow, we've never done that. But what I learned most about Buddhism is that compassion is more than the actually, you know, accompanying or being with someone who's suffering. It's the way we think about people who are suffering. It's the way we think about ourselves. That was a whole new area for me. So I came back to Iowa to live. And um, a few years after that, I had a really, really good friend of mine who died suddenly. 
And the morning that he died, I was standing at the patio door. And so I'm standing there and I'm feeling really grieved. And this hummingbird came up to the window of the patio and I, I didn't really hear the words, and yet I, I did, and it said, love is all that counts. And it was after that that I started just thinking a lot about compassion and the suffering in our world and maybe how I could be uh, of help to that in some way. And so eventually, um, another sister in my community and I designed this program called Boundless Compassion. And we've had probably about 2,500 people go through that in the 10 years. We, we only take about 50 people for each of our conferences or retreats. And then last year, we trained 75 people to take over the program or, or to help with that. Um, and so what I've learned about compassion personally that's really helped me is really seeing each person as a story not judging them, knowing every person we ever meet has had suffering in their life. And so how can I be with them in a way that supports and sustains them rather than, you know, judging them as different than I am or whatever it might be? Most everybody that goes through the program will say they're really changed by it because they leave with thinking about people differently. Compassion is just being nice and kind to people and helpful when, you know, you're with them and something's hurting them in some way. But compassion, I think, is even before we do that, compassion is how we think and how we respond to other people and our attitude toward other people that they're, you know, if they're different than we are, that somehow we aren't connected to them in some way, but what we truly are. Given the work that you have done in the past 10 years, if someone has a desire to become more compassionate, what advice can you offer them? learning how to be mindful. You know, mindfulness is kind of an overused word right now, but to really be mindful, it is the most helpful thing. It's really been helpful for me. Being mindful really is is, is pausing to pay attention to what's going on in our thoughts and what and how we're feeling. Last week, I was working in my office, and I, I just having a really good morning. I thought, oh, this is great. I can be here this morning, and I don't have any meetings, and, and I don't think I'm going to have a lot of phone calls. And all of a sudden, I had this email that I had to attend that had to do with going working through some finance stuff with tax-exempt forms and all this stuff I had to fill out. I could just tell that I was spiraling down. I was getting irritated and <laughs> hating those forms. And, and I just paused and I thought, pay attention here. You're just like an airplane nosediving and emotionally. And, and so when I did that, it, it really helped me not to just keep going into that emotional state that I was in. I really pulled myself out of it and I could tend to what I was doing, you know, a lot more attentively, I guess. A good way in mindfulness is just training ourselves to pause, you know, to, to take a moment and back off and breathe and, and, and be present to what is within ourselves so we're not projecting that kind of stuff onto other people. Mindfulness can really help us be more aware of people's suffering. We can be with someone who has a physical illness, but that might not be the great suffering that's happening for them. 
Like I, I remember reading a story in Stephen Levine's book, Healing into Life and Death, and he tells a story about a woman named Hazel who was alienated from everybody in her family for years. She hadn't seen her grandchildren. She you know, never had any contact with her children, and she developed cancer of the spine. And so she was in the hospital, and she was, she was really dying from, from that. Everybody in the who took care of her just hated to come into that room because she was so angry and irritable and hostile and demanding. And and so this one night, she had this, what she called a vision. It was maybe just a dream, but she envisioned that she saw these people all around the world who had some kind of horrible back pain like she had. You know, someone in a car accident, a youth who was, you know, had fallen and, and broken his back. And it's just all kinds of people with severe back pain. And when she woke up from that, she had a whole different awareness of suffering. And it just like broke her heart open and she softened and she asked the nurse if she could call her children and bring grandchildren to see her. And when they came, they they were absolutely amazed because she was so different. And the healthcare workers, they love coming into her room. They said it was just like filled with light. And so it was her sense of her unity with other people who were suffering that that made such a difference. So along with mindfulness, I think the more we can be aware that we aren't the only ones who hurt, that every, every single person that we meet has something in their life, either from the past or present, that they're dealing with. And so we can approach them with a much greater kindness, I think, than, than just simply another person or, you know, we're just passing them by or treating them and moving on from there. It is, you know, I was, I was reading something earlier this morning and it was on the theme of hope. And the, the statement was that, that hope, hope is a learned ability. And I'm just wondering, is that transferable to compassion as well? Is compassion not something one has or doesn't have? It's something that's learned, that's nurtured? You know, most researchers today will say that everyone is born with the capacity for compassion. Although some children are born and, you know, I'm thinking of fetal alcohol syndrome or something that there, that has been damaged, that ability has been damaged. But for the most part, people have that ability to be compassionate, but something can happen early in life that, um, that compassion closes down. It can be called forth you know, from people. And it's, I think it certainly is. And one of the ways that I see compassion growing and deepening in people is when they themselves suffer significantly. People who suffer themselves realize it, it like opens their heart and they, they know suddenly they want to help other people who've suffered in that way. And I would say for myself, too, I think my compassion has grown greatly since I've done more study and research and taught this. And we definitely can keep growing in that. And and also, I think it's really good to have kinship with people that are wanting to grow in compassion. Um, in our program, we continue after the conferences and retreats, we encourage people to join a circle of compassion where they continue to talk about what it's like to be compassionate and they study resources on compassion, whether they're books or YouTubes or videos or whatever, so that we keep that in front of us. We don't just kind of set it aside and say, okay, now I've got it, I'm compassionate. 
What do you find are the key items that people misunderstand about compassion? One of the big ones I I come across time and again is that people in any kind of helping professions particularly, but, but I would say people in general, they believe that compassion is about being with other people that suffer and they really discount being with themselves when they suffer. One of the days that we do during the, the conference is it's dedicated totally to compassion for self. And a lot of people misunderstand that. They think that compassion for self is either kind of a wimpy sort of thing or else it's very self-indulgent. And yet when we get into that day and and we invite them to think about self-compassion in two ways. First of all, it's how we view ourselves. And then secondly, it's how we tend to ourselves when we're suffering. And it's like, wow, you know, you just see them kind of waking up to that. And at the end of that that conference or retreat on the evaluations, almost always there will be comments that will say, I'd wished we'd had another day on self-compassion. I don't think our culture encourages that, and it is so misunderstood. And how do I view myself? What you know, when I'm not, when I see myself making mistakes, or I'm not all I want to be, you know, what kind of names do I call myself? They probably aren't names I call somebody else, but I, you know, like stupid and you know, worthless or can't manage this or whatever it might be. And a lot of that stems from our family history you know, what we heard and what we were taught when we were young. I grew up in a family that was 99% German. And, you know, we were taught, um, not verbally, but taught by example, that you just kept your your pain to yourself. You didn't talk about it with other people. You swallowed it. And you certainly didn't cry about things. You just went on with life and you were supposed to get over it. So when I was 25, my my brother Dave drowned in a fishing accident, and I I remember so clearly at the the time of that funeral, our family was gathered, and the only person who cried was my mother, and she only cried when the casket was closed. Otherwise, we just stifled all of that, and we never talked about how painful it was for us. So I, I went on with that, and I was like in my 30s, before I really uh, began to learn or discover that that I was worthy of care, that I was worthy of tending to the pain that I had, whether it was in my body or in, in my spirit. And also, you know, to, to think about the names that I was called when I was young, one of the big names I was called when I didn't do something right in my family was that I was stupid. We were all stupid if we didn't do something right. And so I began listening to that voice in myself, you know, when I, anything I do, I thought, boy, that was really dumb thing, you know. And, and so I had to unlearn those things. And, and I have, I, I really have with practice. And, you know, one can do that. I remember a, a really dear a friend of mine, oncology nurse. She told me one time when her husband had died suddenly that she was just so full of sorrow and she continued to work every day. 
and she described herself as someone driving a car with a flat tire and not paying any attention to it. She said she just pushed on and on and she didn't take care of herself. You know, she got ill. Just It was just a really hard time because she couldn't sit with herself and say, I'm so sorry you're going through this and, you know, I'll do what I can to be with you in this and I'll help you get through it. You know, just like we would with somebody else who, who would be grieving at that time. Are there simple practices that aid our ability to become better at self-compassion? Yes, and they are really simple ones. It's just a matter of getting in the habit of doing them. And and the very first one is just pausing. You know, I think of I think of a parent with a child that's, you know, having a tantrum. The parent needs to pause and just, you know, become mindful take in what's happening, notice what's happening. The parent notices what's happening within himself or herself. And, and I think teaching the child how to do that too. You know, we just gonna, we're just going to take some deep breaths here. I've encouraged nurses to do that before they go into a patient's room and if it's a really pressed day, but even if it isn't, you know, just standing just for 30 seconds and just breathing in and out, you know, just just taking that sort of running on to the next thing. Another way that's really easy to do it to become mindful is just, you know, putting our hand into a fist and then opening it up slowly and then closing it slowly and opening it up again. It's it's kind of like with the breath coming in and out, just being very mindful again. It just slows us down. And I think that's a lot of what mindfulness is. If we catch ourselves just instantly, we don't maybe we're not even pausing, we just catch ourselves, maybe giving ourselves those messages about self that we don't want to have anymore or maybe our attitude towards someone else you know then having a little um a habit of something that we say no i'm not that way or no i don't think that way anymore you know just just that simple kind of thing um the more that we repeat that the more that it will become part of us and you know i do quite a bit with science now with quantum science and um neuroscience in relation to compassion and what i've learned about one aspect of compassion um it's a whole area of electromagnetic fields and there's a theory called morphogenic uh, fields and and a a field is an energy of uh, uh, it's a, it's an area of energy and a morphogenic field um, according to Rupert Sheldrake who's one of the scientists that discovered this that a morphogenic field is really um, it's an energy field that holds habits and memories and um, and certain behaviors and what he believes is that the more that we practice in a certain way the more that we do something in a certain way it builds up the strength of the energy in that field the more that we say something positive to ourselves and the more that we think positively or we think a certain way about something or act a certain way like pausing in that mindfulness the more it becomes strengthened and so the more that we will we'll be able to practice that more naturally as we as we move along what i say to people in teaching compassion is that the more that we change our attitude about certain things or the more that we try to live differently or speak differently within ourselves or to other people or whatever it might be, that can become stronger for us. It's, it's just, I think, the old thing we've talked about habits, only we're talking about it in a more scientific way now. Joyce, I'm wondering, would you have stories that come to mind on the impact 
of learning these methods of compassion or how compassion has become transformative for those that you've worked with? What comes to mind right away is a story that Jack Cornfield um, describes in his book, A Path with Heart. And I do this now. I've learned this. He teaches his retreatants to do the loving kindness meditation, which basically is wishing well to ourselves and wishing well to other people. And, and he had um, a woman come to him whose husband had left her for a younger woman. It was a really painful divorce that took place, and she had so much hostility and anger toward this uh, former husband, and she'd held it for years, just, just, you know, constantly felt that anger within her. And she came to him and said she really wanted to dispel that emotion in herself. And so he taught her to, first of all, and this is basically the loving-kindness meditation, you say each of these phrases on the in-breath, you know, may I, may I be filled with loving-kindness, may I be free from suffering, you know, may I receive what I need, may I be at peace. Just basically, it can phrases similar to that. Then we extend those well wishes to another person. And he suggested that she do that for her former husband, you know, send forth that loving kindness to him, you know, may you dwell on loving kindness, or may you have loving kindness, may you be free from suffering, may you have peace. And she did that, she did that for several years, and, and then he died. She actually was able to go to that funeral and have peace in her heart, not hold any more of that that hardness that she'd had or you know feel resentment toward the the wife that he had i think it's quite amazing that she could actually get herself you know there uh, i know a woman who was able to forgive her father who was a serious practicing alcoholic who had had beat them who had been really horrible to his children but she began doing that meditation every day picturing her father, and who, had, who was deceased by them, but picturing him and just saying, you know, may you have peace, may you be free of suffering. And as she did that for him, she got more and more peaceful within herself until finally she was able to lay the, all those harsh memories aside and remember some good things about her dad because there were some good things there. It's just they were so covered over with, with his behavior when he had been drinking. It also, you know, can happen um, for people who are grieving. I've, I've done a lot of work with grief. Um, when I wrote my book, Praying Our Goodbyes, I, for a long time, for about five, 10 years, I, I mostly worked with people who were in some, some area of loss in their life. At that time, I didn't know about that meditation and loving kindness, but I was able to help them get in touch with their grief and to be more kind and compassionate toward themselves. And so that eventually they could be with themselves in their sorrow as much as they could be with other people. That's just the hardest thing to do. But if they can do that, you know, they, they really, they, they, they can change. When my brother died, who was 23, when he drowned, I had such a hard time with his death. I could not forgive myself for being so, so mean to him when we were in high school together. I was two years older than he was. And, you know, I was always 
treating him like he was my slave, you know, and making him do stuff for me. And he was so kind hearted and he usually did it. And when he died, I had all these regrets about, I wished I had not said that. I wish I'd not done that, you know, and, and this went on and on for me until finally I was almost 40 and I made this, this uh, 30 day retreat, extended retreat. And during that retreat, I brought this up with my director, my spiritual director. And I said, you know, I, every time I think about my brother's death, I start crying. I just can't forgive myself. And she suggested that I write a letter to my brother and that, no, she suggested I write a dialogue with him, listen to him, talk to me, and I would talk to him. And I was real hesitant to do that. I thought that's not going to work, but I, I did do it. And it was, that was a turning point for me because I realized that he had long ago forgiven me for anything that I would have done, that 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 was really in the past and that I was just carrying that on and beating myself up with that. And it was really about compassionating, forgiving myself, you know, compassionating myself. Once I did that dialogue, it was astounding. I have never felt the way I did after his death. I, I'm totally at peace with that. Um, you probably meet many people who are just beginning on the journey of serving people in the area of spirituality or in other areas like you have done. What would your advice be to the next generation of colleagues who want to serve similar important needs in their community, given the journey you've been on? What I would really encourage them to do is to, first of all, establish a spiritual practice that they can be faithful to. I, I serve as a spiritual guide or a spiritual director to a number of people. I meet with them, um, usually come once a month, and they're at very different stages in, in I would say, in, not better or worse, but just different. And as you said, some are just starting out. They want to have it all happen right away. And, and I just I keep encouraging, be patient, you know, believe in yourself, but be patient and be faithful to some kind of spiritual practice every day. And I suggest, you know, because right away they want to start doing, oh, I'm going to do an hour of meditation. I say, forget it. You'll never do it. One, you'll do it one, one, one or two times. And then you say, I can't, I don't have that kind of time. And then pretty soon you're not doing it. You know, you can do five minutes every morning you can you can do 5 minutes of just quiet sitting or meditation doing some reading that's inspiring for yourself but do it every day and then you know after a few months maybe you can do 10 minutes of that quiet time but establish that for yourself and and begin that way and 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 keep praying i i really believe in in praying to grow spiritually. And that praying can be something as simple as an affirmation. You know, I believe that I can grow in being the person I really am meant to be. I really want to meditate every day. Uh, beginning easy, be not being hard on oneself, uh, but staying faithful to it. That's that's a big thing. And because there are so many pulls away from that in, in our our culture today, it's I always say I kind of bookend my my day. I, I begin with um, a significant time of meditation and and in inspirational reading, I would call it, and some journaling. And then I end my work day later afternoon. And now it's nice. I can do it in the early evening. I go for an hour walk and. 
I love my walks in nature because I just kind of, I say it's kind of, that's the time I can be unmindful. I just let my mind kind of romp around like a dog out in the dog park, you know? And I love it because it's a debriefing time for myself. And I often get a lot of my inspiration for writing when I'm out there walking, or it's just a quiet time, an enjoyable time. But I, I find that being faithful to to those spiritual practices is really vital, uh, whether a person's starting out or whether they're, they've been on the journey for a while. And the other thing I would say is not comparing. I think comparisons are just odious. And and I, I don't like these books on spirituality that say you, you go through stages. So it sounds like you, you can get to a better stage. You know, we are where we are and we don't compare with others. You know, we're where we ought to be, we're, or at least where we are. And, and we, we trust that we can keep growing. But I, I think it's dangerous to compare our spirituality to where other people's are in their spirituality. I think it can get us in a lot of trouble. As a way to end our episodes, we often ask our guests if they have a particular poem that is meaningful to them to share with us. Would you have such a poem that you'd like to share with us today? You know, my favorite poet in all the world, I just shared this at a retreat last week. I said, if I lived on a desert island and I could only bring one book with me, I would bring my little book of Rabindranath Tagore. He's an East Indian poet, and he was India's first poet laureate, actually. The title of the book is the Gitanjali, which means love songs. And they're little poems of Tagore. They're all prayers. Um, Tagore was Hindu, and, and he had this fabulous ability to extend his understanding of the divine, I think, into a a larger panorama of, you know, the one divine being that unites all of us. And so I've always been drawn to his poetry. And a few years ago, I decided to memorize one of his his poems that is really uh, like, it is a prayer, an affirmation of desire of what one hopes to have happen in their life. And so if it's okay, I'll just go ahead and and recite that for you. Lovely. Let your love play upon my voice and rest in its silence. Let it pass through my heart into all my movements. Let your love like the stars shine in the darkness of my sleep and dawn in my awakening. Let it burn in the flame of my desires and flow through all currents of my own love. Let me carry your love in my life as a harp does its music and give it back to you at last with my life. Appreciation to our guest Joyce Rupp for joining us in conversation today. And appreciation, as always, to our listeners. I'm Kevin Murphy. This is the Mission Innovation Podcast.